Welcome to the 24-Minute Bible Podcast featuring Pastor Mark Miner, where we will journey together to help you grasp how the Bible fits together to provide a coherent, understandable, and historical book. The purpose of this podcast is not to convince, but to help you understand. Not to defend, but to connect the dots of this most amazing book. Not to debate, but to discover the plan of the Bible. There is a plan. If you enjoy what you hear today, please leave us a review. It really does help us. And now, here's Pastor Mark. Well, as I most often do, I want to thank you for listening today to this edition, episode 17 of the 24-Minute Bible Podcast. But I also want to give a couple other kudos today. I want to, I want to thank Justin Holman, who does the intro and outro to each one of these episodes. And I appreciate Justin and his voice, his songs, and, and his words, his abilities. And I also... Um, I want to give a heads up and kudos to Tammy Head, and she does all the editing and the directing. She's the one who says, have you got your podcast done yet, Mark? Uh, so I appreciate her and the technology that she brings to this, this 24-minute Bible podcast. But believe me, I thank you for listening because that's why I do it. It's why we do the effort, and I truly hope with the power and the, of the Lord, Holy Spirit working, that... that um, it's helping you to understand the Bible. That is the premise. That is the purpose. Uh, not to convince or defend or debate, as we often say, but to help you understand, connect, and discover. <clears throat> Most of us know William Shakespeare. He wrote 39 different plays. C.S. Lewis, uh, one of my favorite authors, as I've mentioned before, 67 books. Uh, the Beatles, one of the bands that I grew up with, of course, uh, <clears throat> 13 different albums that they recorded together. Stephen King has written over 70 different books, all of them scary and none of which I have ever read, not a one. I'm not interested in scary books. But I say all that to say this, I do you a disservice today by taking all five of the books of, the wis of wisdom of the Bible, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon, and lumping them together in one 24-minute podcast. So I promise I'm going to make it up to you next week, in fact, as uh, we will look at the books independently and in more depth than today. So consider this, if you will, part one of the books of wisdom, or consider this today the Cliff Notes version. And if you're familiar with that, if you went to college, uh, or just listen, learn, and enjoy as you are driving, running, eating breakfast, or hiding from your boss. Whatever you're doing, thank you for being alongside as we look at episode 17, the books of wisdom. So, so why the books of wisdom? Why did God put those in the Bible, in the Old Testament? Because we are human. I mean, that is the simple answer. Other than God coming to earth in human form in the form of Jesus Christ, these five books are the most human books in the Bible. And God made us that way. He made us human. He made us with a full range of, of all the feelings that we have. We are full of emotion and fury and passions and questions and motives and desires. And ah, that's us. We're human. And these five books show the humanity of us as we relate to God in different ways and with different, very serious issues or questions in front of us. 
Each one of the five books were written to transcend time. In other words, they were written so that someone in 1000 BC and someone in 2021 AD can understand the wisdom found in these books. They were also written to transcend station. And by that, I mean someone in the jungles of Indonesia or in a penthouse in New York City can relate to what these five books have to say. They also are God's practical and creative way of helping us deal with every human emotion and experience that we have in life. So welcome to the Books of Wisdom, Part 1. And in today's podcast, as I mentioned, we'll take sort of a helicopter view of the five books. Next week, we will get out our drones and we'll hover over each book a little more, uh, their purpose and their definition, and we'll just dive in a little deeper to each one of these five books. So thank you for being a part of today's episode. Hope you enjoy it. We're going to begin with one of the most interesting, I guess I could say that about any book in the Bible, but truly, the book of Job is an amazing book. It is the oldest book in the Bible. We do not know who the human author is. We know God wrote it. We don't know who he used to write it. But we do know a little bit about the man named Job. Job had 12 children. Uh, we'll touch more on this next week when we talk about his life and some of his experiences. But he had 10 children, wife, and uh, we know where he lived approximately. The Bible tells us he lived in the land of Uz. You can consult some, some concordances and, and you can Google it. Uh, you'll find a lot of different ideas of where the land of Uz might have been. But it was probably uh, somewhere in the Middle East. Uh, probably or perhaps a good chance it's in modern-day Jordan, which would be on the other side, the, the east side of the Jordan River and in the country of Jordan. And, and most definitely, it had a Middle Eastern type of environment because we know that uh, Job uh, owned many cattle, cattle, excuse me, camels, sheep, and donkeys. So we certainly know that he had a desert type of existence going on for himself. We also know when it was written, uh, probably two to three centuries after the flood, which is going to put the authorship or the time of the writing of the book of Job around 2000 BC, approximately 2000 years after creation, 2000 years before the coming of Christ. Sometime around, perhaps before, but sometimes around the time of Abraham and the patriarchs. Now that's important as we come to some things today a little bit and certainly next week as we touch a little more fully on the book of Job. The theme, however, of the book of Job is human suffering. <clears throat> what is the cause of our suffering? We all have it. We all endure it. How is suffering just? Is there such a thing as unjust or unjust suffering? Our response to human suffering is also revealed and explained in the book of Job. Job Job was God's man. He was the one, God's the one that pointed out Job. Job didn't ask for this whole book of Job and, and the experiences he had. God's the one who put it upon Job, not that he caused all the suffering, but he pointed to Job in one of the most interesting, intriguing dialogues in the entire Bible. And perhaps the history of the world is found in Job 1 and Job 2. That's where God and Satan have a discussion. And it's there that God says, Have you considered my servant Job? 
perhaps today you're feeling like God is talking about you. Have you considered my servant Mike? Have you considered my servant Paula? Whoever, whatever your name may be. Sometimes we feel that way. Certainly Job perhaps never even knew that he was the subject of that uh, spiritual encounter and that discussion between God and Satan. But we read about it again in Job 1 and 2. The results of that discussion is the suffering of Job. Lastly, as far as the book of Job is concerned, are the last five chapters. Again, amazing, intriguing, incredible chapters. Uh, It is God's longest monologue in the Bible as God discourses uh, for these five chapters with a little bit of interruption from, from Job, but mainly God's on his soapbox, if you will, and he's discoursing to Job and to us now, Uh, about all the things that he has done and how much we really don't know. He talks about star constellations. He talks about physics. He talks about meteorology. He talks about biology. All sorts of different subjects God refers to. If you know so much, explain to me these things, God is saying to Job and to us today. I particularly like chapter 41, and I point this out to you simply because I think it defines some things. It's important, but it's also just interesting. Chapter 41 talks about a creature, a creature that has fire coming out of its mouth, that it can set coals ablaze, that is huge. It talks about the scales on its back, its large tail, and and when it opens its mouth, uh, smoke and sparks come out. You know where I'm going with this. He's talking about dragons. And I want to simply insert this as we think about the book of Job, because it is the oldest book written in the Bible. It is shortly after the flood, in other words, a century or two. As we talked about dinosaurs early on in the beginning of the 24-Minute Bible podcast, as we look at the book of Genesis, I explained to you my theory, my philosophy, I believe I'm correct in this, that there were dinosaurs certainly before the flood, and there were dinosaurs on the ark. And there were dinosaurs after the flood. But because of the change in planet Earth, those dinosaurs eventually, most of them, except the ones that live in the ocean, uh, all the other land-breathing animals that were on the ark, eventually most of those died out. We can understand that perhaps that was the case in the lot of the dragons. But dragons seem to be not a mythological creature, but a genuine creation of a holy God before the flood and shortly thereafter the flood. Certainly Satan is called the great dragon. I don't think God would refer to Satan as a mythological creature. Rather, I think that the dragon has some characteristics that we understand uh, might be characteristic or implied uh, to Satan as well. So the book of Job, we'll, we'll drone in on it a little more next week. Let's go to the book of Psalms and just a little overview of the book of Psalms. It's the longest book in the Bible with 150 chapters. And when you think of Psalms, you might think of it as the greatest hits album. You could think of it as a hymnal if you want. That is indeed correct. It's a collection of songs from a lot of different folks and a lot of different times. It's written over approximately a 1,000-year period of time. Moses wrote Psalms 90, and so Moses is living about 1500 B.C. 
Then we read Psalms 137, which talks about after the destruction of the temple, they hung their harps on the poplars of Babylon. So that the, the book of Psalms says, so that's after the destruction of the temple. So we're talking about sometime after 571 BC. So we're talking about a thousand year period of time that the collection of Psalms comes together in the Old Testament. Many of the titles that are in front of or above the Psalms were not included in the original Psalms. They were added simply as descriptors of, of the Psalms and we're not really sure who wrote all of the Psalms. The Psalms are divided in the, in the Jewish understanding. They're divided into five books. They're usually in our uh, English Bibles divided the same way uh, from 1 to 41 is book 1 and so forth all the way to Psalms 150. But the Psalms are powerful because they're the most frequently quoted book in the New Testament. Well over 100 times the book of Psalms is quoted throughout the 27 books of the New Testament. There are many different types of Psalms. There are Psalms of thanksgiving and praise. We're familiar with those. There are historical Psalms. There are ethical Psalms that help us to understand and clarify our emotions. There are Psalms of penitence. David's Psalm in Psalms 51 where he cries out and repents to God for the sin of, of uh, adultery with Bathsheba and then uh, killing indirectly her husband. There are imprecatory psalms, which means psalms of complaining and cursing and confronting. And the psalmist, as I said, the whole the whole books of wisdom are all about our emotions and how we deal with them. And psalms has every emotion and every aspect from the very highest high to the deepest low. That's the book of Psalms. The Psalms also has many messianic Psalms that uh, refer to the coming of the Christ or have other prophetic implications. There are ceremonial Psalms, the book of ascents, as they made their way up to the temple. So the Psalms cover a lot of different aspects of our human existence in their 150 chapters. The authors of the Psalms, we almost always think that it's King David, and, and that would be half right. David's responsible for probably around 73 of the Psalms. Some of those Psalms were written when he was a little shepherd boy, tending sheep and sitting, standing out there watching over his sheep and singing songs to his heavenly father as a young man. Uh, playing his guitar. Eventually, of course, he, we know he, he played his guitar uh, for King Saul when the depression and the demons would come upon him. Uh, those were songs that David had written while he was out there tending sheep. He wrote songs while he was hiding in the caves and, and trying to save his own life as uh, Saul and his uh, forces were after him. There were songs that were written on the battlefield, songs that David wrote on the, in the palace. So 73 or so psalms written by David. Then there's 12 songs written by a man by the name of Asaph, A-S-A-P-H. Uh, Asaph was appointed by King David as his staff songwriter. Some of you will know uh, Justin Holman, and <clears throat> I referenced him earlier. His, his brother, Mark, is a staff songwriter for a country western band. In fact, he had a number one hit not too terribly long ago. Uh, Florida Georgia Line uh, is his, so he writes songs for them, and that's what he does. Well, Asaph was uh, uh, employed by King David to write songs of praise for um, <clears throat> for God and for those in the temple. Then, thirdly, there are the descendants of Korah, and we don't know exactly who they were. It just lists them as the descendants of Korah. Approximately ten of the psalms were written by them. They were Levites priests, and they actually were the ones who kept the keys to the temple. 
So they abode, lived in the temple and around it, and they wrote 10 of the Psalms that we know, read, and sometimes sing. Solomon himself wrote one or two. Then there's a man by the name of Heman and another one by the name of Ethan who were advisors to Solomon. Each of them are credited with one psalm each. And then as I reference, there's Moses who wrote one of the psalms, Psalms 90. Jesus quotes the psalms quite often in the New Testament. Uh, the most uh, powerful, probably, no probably about it, the most powerful and one of the most familiar is when Jesus is crying out on the cross. He's been crucified and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he's quoting Psalms 22.1. And you find that verse, that reference in Matthew 27.46, but Jesus is quoting Psalms 22.1. Look, my friends, Jesus knew the Old Testament. That was his Bible. He knew it inside and out. He had studied. He had showed himself approved. And when, even in the midst of, of tragedy and incredible pain, it was those psalms and those verses that he had memorized that came out of him as he quoted the scripture in time of need. He also quoted Psalms 118.22 to the Pharisees who were asking him who he was. And he said, well, let me tell you, friends, the stones, the, the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Well, that's Matthew 21, 42. But that's Jesus quoting Psalms 118, 22 to 24. So the book of Psalms, we'll, we'll touch more on that next week in, in part two, but the Psalms are powerful. Now let's move quickly to a man. Not so much the book, but the man, because the man defines the books. He wrote three of the books of the books of wisdom, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And of course, I'm talking about Solomon. To understand a person, and I love to do this, I love to listen to someone's music or read someone's books and then try to get a, a picture of the author. Well, the book certainly can give you a picture. Their art can give you a picture of the individual. But the Bible also gives us a very explicit picture of the life of Solomon, and it defines and guides the things that the Holy Spirit wrote through him in these three last books of wisdom, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. Let's, let's uh, think about Solomon for just a minute. The Bible tells us he was the wisest and the wealthiest man that ever lived. He lived on the earth about 1000 B.C., uh, and he tried everything, literally, he tried everything. Solomon, to put it in our terms today, Solomon was a trust fund baby. What do I mean by that? Well, if you know the Kardashians, Paris Hilton, uh, the children of the Kennedys, the children of the Rockefellers, even the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, a trust fund baby. In other words, they didn't do much. They got their money through inheritance. Pritzker is a Hyatt hotel chain. He's inherited his wealth from there. So we see that all the time. And, and in a sense, they're living in the accomplishments, the reputation, and the wealth accrued by their parents. Solomon was a trust fund baby. His dad, King David, had secured the peace, had established the nation, had built the reputation, and had paved the way for Solomon. So Solomon lived his 40-year reign. Was it, was, he lived in a time of peace. Things were, uh, the battles were fought, and most of the issues were laid to rest, and he could do uh, and pursue some other pursuits, and pursue he did. He threw himself into intellectual pursuits. Solomon wrote books on trees and animals and birds and plants. 
He wrote over 3,000 proverbs. The Bible tells us this. He wrote 1,005 songs. So Solomon threw himself into the intellectual side of things. He also threw himself into pleasure. He denied himself nothing. Those are his words, not mine. Uh, Here it comes from Ecclesiastes 2.10, where he says, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold from my heart any pleasure. Ecclesiastes 2.10. So Solomon had opportunity, time, and resources to do what all of us think would make us happy. Solomon had every aspect of that at his hands, and he pursued it with everything within him. He enlarged his properties. You know, when you get money, you want to add on to your house, you want to build, you want to buy. That's what he did. He enlarged his properties. He built lakes, gardens, barns. He imported exotic animals, apes and peacocks, the Bible tells us. He had 1,400 chariots, and he had 40,000 horses, most of them imported from Egypt and other places. He brought into his kingdom ivory and spice. Solid gold cups were the order of the day. If you were at Solomon's uh, birthday party, for example, they would serve you your, your, your soda, your wine, your whatever, in a solid gold cup. He had 200 shields as tall as a man made out of solid gold. He built chariot cities for his horses. His income, just in gold, the Bible tells us, was 666 talents a year. If you do the math on that, and assuming that gold is around $2,000 an ounce, that may be a little high for us, but it's been there uh, in times before, Solomon's yearly income just in gold was $17 billion. $17 billion a year for 40 years. Solomon lacked nothing. His throne was gold, but not only was his throne gold, when you took the steps up to his throne, think of a wedding, if you will, where the bridesmaids and the groomsmen are all sort of uh, veed out, uh, leading up to the bride and the groom. Well, Solomon's throne was very similar to that, and there were six steps leading to his throne. Each of those steps on either side, 12 in all, there was a solid gold lion, life-size. You talk about an impressive sight to step into Solomon's throne room and go up to his throne, as the Bible uh, explains to us. So Solomon had it all. He had a fleet of ships that were harbored in uh, the Red Sea, or at the, at the port of the Red Sea. They sailed to India, Ethiopia, and all through Africa, Persia, perhaps even to distant, land, distant lands in the Orient, like Thailand or Burma, as we would call it, they would call it back then. So all kinds of things Solomon had. You, you want to talk about pleasure, and Solomon says he denied himself no pleasure. Well, let's talk about the sexual aspect of things for a minute. He had 700 wives, and the Bible tells us 300 consorts, concubines. So he had a harem of over 1,000 lovers. To some people, that would be the some men that would be the ultimate situation. He threw himself into construction projects. He built chariot cities, aqueducts, roads, palaces, and of course, the temple of God. So I'm not saying that his wealth was bad. I am saying that all of those things did not make him happy. And Ecclesiastes 12:13 gives us his uh, philosophy, if you will. The conclusion is this: fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. So that was, that was part of Solomon's life. So we look quickly at, at his three books, the book of Proverbs, written by Solomon. They were practical advice. Uh, they they contain practical advice on living our lives, relationships, 
Um, and, and most of all, our relationship with God, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, kind of sums up the Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not into your own understandings. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will direct your paths. Those are the words of the wisest man that ever lived, Solomon, as he lived his life. We remember some of the Proverbs. If we don't remember the specifics, they found their way into our common parlance, into our common language. Pride goeth before a fall. Spare the rod, spoil the child. The apple of your eye. A gentle answer turns away wrath. We remember those. A friend loveth at all times. A joyful heart is good medicine. Or we even talk about heaping burning coals on our enemies' heads. Those are all from the book of Proverbs. Then we talk about, and I've already referenced the book Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is Solomon's philosophy book. In, in effect, it's his autobiography. As he wrote about all the things he did, and he came to the conclusion uh, that to, to serve God and to honor him with our lives, that is the whole duty of man. Last, we have the book of Solomon, Song of Solomon. Song of Solomon, I remember reading that one time in church, and I was not listening to the sermon. I was a young man, and I opened up there to the book of Song of Solomon. I read some of those words, and I closed the Bible. I didn't think I ought to be reading that in church. And yet it was God's Word, and it is God's Word. Song of Solomon is sort of like a Harlowan romance uh, of the Bible, maybe with a little bit of Fifty Shades of Grey tossed in alongside. There's a lot of sensuality in, in the book of Solomon, Song of Solomon because it is about romance. It is about sensuality. God made us as sexual beings, and we shouldn't run from that. We should embrace it in God's plan for us with our bodies and in our relationships. Solomon, Song of Solomon 4, he's talking about his lover, and he says, Oh, how beautiful are you, my darling. Your eyes are, are uh, behind your veil are like doves. Uh, your teeth are like flocks of sheep coming from a washing. Each has its twin. All that means is she has very white teeth and she's got them all. That's all that means. Not one of them is alone. It continues on. He says, your lips are like scarlet ribbons. Your mouth is lovely. Your neck is like the Tower of David. It's strong. It's powerful. And then here's that part that I thought, oh, I shouldn't read that. Your breasts are like two fawns, like two Twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. Now, you can interpret that and get all the pictures you want. But listen, that's God's word telling us that he created us to be, to love, to enjoy within the context of human marriage and human romance as he has planned it. So the book of Job struggles with human suffering. The book of Psalms, the encyclopedia of, a human, of human emotions. The book of Proverbs, practical wisdom for daily living. The book of Ecclesiastes, the philosophy and autobiography of Solomon. And that last book, Song of Solomon, romantic love and a picture of Christ in the church. So uh, you get the idea of where we're at. Now next week, we're going to take our drone and, and hone in a little bit on these different five books and just get a fuller picture of these books of wisdom and how they relate to us and why God has included them in the Bible. So thank you for being a part of today's episode. Look forward to uh, speaking with you next week as we talk about the books of, the wisdom, uh, books of wisdom, part two. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the 24-Minute Bible Podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the 24-Minute Bible Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and look forward to continuing this journey to understanding the Bible, please subscribe to the channel. And if you would be so kind, please share it with your friends who might enjoy it as well. 
Join us next week with Mark Miner for another episode as we continue to explore how the Bible so beautifully fits together. May you have a blessed week and may God be glorified in your lives.